Welcome to another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. I know we want to get into the action, but I have to ask that you help me armor us up a bit for the bumpy road ahead. Because I bring you the first hour of this show without unrelated ad nonsense as a proof of concept. And if you value it, then come over to THC Plus for the $8 a month and hear the full two-hour interviews as they were designed to be and as you would enjoy them most. Go to thehiresidechats.com or just click the link in the show notes to get started and within a minute you'll be plugging in your new Plus Show RSS feed into a hopefully decentralized podcasting 2.0 supported app. Feed the things you want to grow and starve the things that gotta go and we will reach the promised land. Think about that and enjoy the show. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Here we go, Hireside Chatters. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and for the longest time, I've noticed that whether I'm in the mood to learn about spiritual beings, growing food, the nature of reality, the complex parts of the mind, the unknown qualities of the human body, alternative forms of education, aspects of the earth, or half a dozen other THC-adjacent subjects, Rudolf Steiner has had something deep, profound, and usually unique to say about it. And when I think about the people today that I admire most in many of these areas, the rogue alternative academics and counterculture scholars, they tend to admire Rudolf Steiner, or at least reference him a great deal. And I like to follow the universe where it leads, so it seems high time we took a look at the almost infinite range of provocative topics Rudolf Steiner has written and lectured about. For those who don't know, Steiner, who lived from 1861 to 1925, was an Austrian-born spiritualist, lecturer, and founder of the Anthroposophy movement. Anthroposophy is an amalgam of the Greek terms anthropos, meaning human, and sophia, meaning wisdom. Anthroposophical proponents aim to extend the clarity of the scientific method to phenomena of human soul life and spiritual experiences. Steiner believed this required developing new faculties of objective spiritual perception, which he maintained was still possible for contemporary humans. The steps of this process of inner development he identified as consciously achieved through imagination, inspiration, and intuition. Steiner believed results of this form of spiritual research should be expressed in a way that can be understood and evaluated on the same basis as the results of natural science. He also hoped this type of spiritual movement would free the individual from any external authority, a notion I certainly would love to see come to fruition. His writings are about as diverse as you can imagine, and his work exceeds over 300 volumes. And here to break it all down is one of the most qualified people I've ever been introduced to, Dr. Stephen Usher. He is a PhD economist with expertise in money, banking, and financial markets who has also had a keen interest in studying Steiner's work for the last 50 years. He ran the Anthroposophic Press from 1980 to 1988 and published 40 volumes of Steiner's work. Anthroposophic Press is still around and marks one of the largest publishers of Steiner material still today and can be explored at steinerbooks.presswarehouse.com. 
I contacted them, they put me in touch with Dr. Usher, and here we are, making the magic happen. So let's get into it. An expert in economics, a dedicated deep diver, and Steiner scholar extraordinaire, Dr. Stephen Usher, welcome to the higher side. Well, thank you for the introduction, and I'm looking forward to uh, exploring Steiner with you. Yes, thank you for doing this. There are just so many aspects of Steiner's work that get mentioned here and there that I thought it would be best to really focus on his work for a full episode. Big thanks to John Scott Legg, the current managing director of Anthroposophic Press, for putting us in touch. I like to think I got a great crash course in Steiner getting ready for this, but even after a couple of weeks of revisiting things, I can tell I really barely scratched the surface. I guess to get into this, I don't think we need to get into a deep biography of the man, but to introduce him and his ideas to the unfamiliar, to put him in his proper context and describe the ways he thought and what made him special, what would you say to the people? Steiner was, as you mentioned, born in 1861, lived to 1925. Already as a child, he had spiritual experiences. He speaks of going into the forest, and he lived in a forest in the Austrian Alps next to a railroad station because his father was the station master. And he could see little beings and forms around plants. And he discovered that the adult world didn't want to talk about those things. And that gave rise to an early search for what it really means to know anything. As he grew older, he started studying geometry, and he said around the age seven that geometry gave him one of the greatest pleasures of his life because here was a topic that you could talk about that you couldn't see. A geometric line is infinitely fine. And so he realized there were some things that adults could speak about. As he grew older, he deepened his knowledge. By the time he was 14, he was reading Kant's Critique of Pure Reason, a major philosophical work which talked about what it meant to know. About 18, he moved to Vienna where he was studying. He had to take a train, and on the train he met an herb gatherer. Back in that time, people still gathered herbs in the forests and sold them at apothecaries. And this herb gatherer also could see the sort of things Steiner saw. So he met somebody who he could talk to. And that herb gatherer introduced the young Steiner, 18-year-old person, to a master, it's called in the biography. They don't talk too much about him. But apparently, about 1879, Steiner was initiated by this master. And he understood that he had a task, and the task was to help modern humanity, which had entered into a technical era, to understand there was a spiritual reality. And so he began that task. 22 years of age, he was at a university in Vienna and was given the job of editing the scientific writings of Goethe. Now, I don't know how many of you know that name, but Goethe is sort of like the Newton and Shakespeare of Germany. So they were bringing out the first definitive edition of Goethe's works, and the young 22-year-old Steiner became the editor of the scientific part of that. 
I've actually got one of those volumes in my library. And then, 24, he writes his first philosophical work, Theory of Knowledge Implicit in Goethe's World Conception, where he starts to really talk about what it means to know things. And then his career skyrockets from there. Does that help? Yes, yes, it does. That's really great context. And so usually with someone like Steiner, whose work is so vast, there's typically an initial subject or idea or thread that a person might pull that really starts the journey for them and gets them hooked. Do you remember what it was that initially gripped you and pulled you in where you first had your mind blown, we might say? Well, I certainly do. I was a student at the University of Michigan, and I was interested in consciousness. I was trying to get into biochemistry and figure out what memory was. And I took a course in Lagrangian mechanics, the mechanics of spinning tops and planetary motion. And there was a very interesting teacher in that class. His name was Ernst Kotz. He was a solid-state physicist. And I got into a conversation with him one day. At the time, I was reading a book called Psychic Sciences Behind the Iron Curtain. This was a popular work in the 70s, and it explored the parapsychological research that the Soviet Union was doing. They were looking for telepathic spies who could tell whether people were true communists or just faking it. And so I had a conversation with Ernst Kotz about this. And he listened to me for a while. Then he said, you know, the trouble with that is it doesn't take morality into account. And I sort of scratched my head. And, you know, I was studying hard science and I thought morality was a purely human construct. And here's this physicist bringing up a topic like that. And then he said to me, well, if you want to know where I am, read a guy named Rudolf Steiner. Well, at the same time, I was reading another book called the Chakras. This was a book by an old theosophist, Bishop Leadbeater. And that book has pictures of the chakras or lotus flowers, as they're called in the Eastern terminology. And I couldn't make any sense of it. I was very mathematically oriented, and Leadbeater had these artistic renderings and descriptions. But I, I thought there was something there, but what on earth was it? So a few days later, I was wandering through a metaphysical bookstore, and I pulled off a shelf a book by Rudolf Steiner. And that book was called Initiation and Its Results. And it's the second half of what is now published as Knowledge of Higher Worlds and Its Attainment. And the first chapter in the second half is called The Chakras. So I thought, aha, this is what this physicist pointed to me. And serendipitously, it's exactly about this topic I've been wondering about. I started reading it, and everything was light. Steiner said the chakras are organs to perceive higher worlds. They're higher sense organs. And each one of them, the two-petal chakra at the brow, the 16-petal chakra at the throat, the 12-petal chakra at the heart, etc., is there to perceive different types of phenomena, spiritual soul phenomena. So that absolutely got me going. And I read a Knowledge of Higher Worlds and other related books on how to develop one's own capacities. That's how I started. 
Very cool. And great reference with Psychic Discoveries Behind the Iron Curtain. That is a book on my shelf as well. It's really, really fascinating. And right here on the cover, it says the most important book about ESP research and the validity of the occult tradition yet to appear, says the Los Angeles Times. So definitely one to check out for people interested in that stuff. And for me, the awareness of Steiner came from looking into just the general major figures of occult history and listening to long audiobooks about the higher realms and spirits. That stuff really intrigued me, the way he talks about the human body, health, and blood, and then learning that the whole network of Waldorf schools are based on his work. And that really seemed like a big deal and like something I would explore for my own children when that time comes. Maybe we start with a little bit about Waldorf schools. What makes them so different from conventional education, and what are your thoughts on them? Waldorf schools are based on Steiner's concepts of child development, the phases a child goes through as it grows up and matures. Now, the concept of phases of development of a child is often associated with another scholar, Piaget. But Steiner was way before Piaget. And, you know, if you look at how the Waldorf schools are organized, if you want to join the first grade, they have certain things they want to test. For example, have you changed a tooth? Has one of your milk teeth come out and a, a new one started in? And Steiner said that is an indication that certain forces that are used to sculpt the physical body have completed some of their work, and the forces that were needed for that are now free to go into learning. So that's a key thing they look for. They also ask, can the child stretch his arms out and cross them so that the hands cross, indicating they have a sense for their own center and ego. So that's sort of a beginning step for first grade readiness. Then to give you just a few other interesting bits, he says, the art of writing is extremely detrimental to spiritual faculties. Of himself, he said he was fortunate that he couldn't properly spell and write until he was 15 years of age. And he said that the process of writing is a mechanical thing that goes into your force system and blocks spiritual awareness. And he points out that if you go back to ancient Egypt, you see that they wrote with what were called hieroglyphics. Now, hieroglyphics are pictures. It's a pictorial language. And Steiner wanted to introduce the children to their letters pictorially. So, for example, in the first grade, they go slowly and methodically through the whole alphabet. Teacher gets to the letter T. And instead of just writing a T on a chalkboard, the teacher will likely draw a beautiful tree with colored chalks, two main branches stretching to the left and right, and slowly abstract from that picture to the abstract form of the T. And this brings the letter from a pictorial world into the child's consciousness in a very delicate, gradual way. Another thing he pointed out about the letters is that if you take a little first grader 
and you write on the board M-O-M, and you say, that's mom. Well, the little kid thinks, what on earth are they talking about? Mom is this lovely lady, this warm lady who takes care of me. These are just chalk marks. And this is the abstraction that the child has to learn to live in. And so he wanted a way to introduce their feelings gradually into this process. So that's how they learn their letters. And he's taking account of where the child's consciousness is. And this process goes on. There's an important change in the ninth year, another in the twelfth year. Care for what happens in puberty. The whole curriculum geared to these transformations of the child's physical soul being. And it's quite amazing. The whole history curriculum does that. The um, English curriculum, all of these things take these phases into account. That's why the education is so remarkable. Even if not every teacher is perfect, they're following that curriculum, which has built into it an amazing insight into how a child grows and matures. Yeah, I think that's really important because when you look at conventional public schools, there's really no difference in the process from the early grades to the latter ones, except for the scale of difficulty, you could say. But in terms of what they actually do day to day, respond to a bell every hour, switch subjects, compartmentalize things, there really is no difference between third grade and, and 12th grade. And that's probably the wrong approach. I guess I would ask if there's any real data comparing the development of Waldorf-educated children to public school kids. Well, there is some data. It was a study in The Lancet, quite interestingly, about 1999. And this study compared the health of Waldorf kids to public school kids, I forget in what country, and they found, I'm just reading a little, yes, yeah, Lancet of May 1999, they found the rate of bronchial asthma, allergies, dermatitis, and other atopic diseases significantly less among Waldorf school pupils compared to public school pupils. They recognized factors they called Steiner units. The more Steiner units you had, the better the child came out. These included breastfeeding, avoidance of childhood immunizations, a highly hot topic today, avoidance of antibiotics and medicaments that reduce fever, consumption of biodynamic and organic foods. They concluded that these kind of things contributed to the better health found in the Waldorf kids. Of course, on other levels, we know the Waldorf kids go out into the world very well-adjusted, very creative. They pursue often very unique careers. And you just have to poke around a bit and you'll discover just how remarkable they are. Uh, we've produced some movie stars. A lady who played in a show about nurses. Margulies, I think is her name. Jennifer Aniston, for a while, was a Waldorf kid. And of course, you know, CEOs of companies, all kinds of things like that. They're quite successful. And as I said, they just have to be very creative and very well socially adjusted. 
Yeah, it seems like it. I recently watched a documentary about Waldorf education, and there were some great lines in it from the people who run the school, like, truth is not a package, it's a process, and education is not about filling a bucket, it's about kindling a fire. Things I very much agree with, and they talked about those stages of childhood and catering education to meet children where they are, that they progress through a movement stage to a feeling stage and then a thinking stage, and I definitely liked that. I think nuance is important and and not a one-size-fits-all approach, and Obviously, not to get too deep into current events, but when we talked a few weeks back about this, I had mentioned that when I read Steiner's work on health, I would think that schools that are built on his ideas would be places where they're not masking kids eight hours a day, requiring a full schedule of vaccination, or relying on digital learning because they keep the classroom low-tech, another thing I appreciate. But the Waldorf schools around me in Southern California seem no different in the last two years. There really hasn't been any resistance to the mandates coming from the top. And I always thought when the time came for me, oh, if I just go to a private school, I could probably avoid a lot of the things I'd want to avoid for my kids. And I don't know, it just doesn't seem to be the case. Although you were telling me about some resistance in Austin, right? Yes. You know, it's been for serious students of Steiner, like myself, a great disappointment that the schools pretty much rolled over under the tremendous pressure of the government, right? I mean, California, particularly onerous, right? Don't they have a vaccine mandate that's almost ironclad? You just can't get out of it. Mm -hmm. And the schools are pressured, you know, and they also tend to look for skilled administrators, and they often take that skill over knowledge of Steiner and Anthroposophy. So it has been disappointing. Uh, In Austin, there's something we call the free school, which is basically a co-op where a bunch of parents band together, educating their own kids, and then building something like a school around that co-op. I gather one is in California as well. and. One of the things we're learning about is called the Private Membership Association. This is something that has existed in the American tradition for a long, long time based on our constitutional right to contract. And we learned about it here in Texas because some of our people recalled that in dry counties in Texas, Texas counties where you're not allowed to consume alcohol, There were restaurants that you could enter, and a number of the guests would be drinking alcoholic beverages. If you ordered one, they say, sorry, you can't have one. How come I can't have one? Well, you're not a member of the private membership association. And these private membership associations can be formed. And within that membership association, you are free of the public sphere. The public authorities have nothing to say to you. And within it, you can do all manner of things. These clubs were set up so they could drink in restaurants. And we learned that uh, many health practitioners use this form and also educators and churches. And if you set the thing up right, it's a membership group. Everybody has to be a member. 
they agree to the rules. And now it's basically the same freedom you have at your family dinner table. It's not the business of the state to interfere there. And so apparently it's possible to set up private educational associations. And then everybody involved, every parent is a member, and they're there for the purpose of educating their child. And within that context, as far as I've been able to understand, the state is not allowed to interfere. Well, we'll find out. There's one set up in California now through fifth grade, and we're working on it in Austin. These things for millennia were, well, not millennia, but for a hundred years were used by churches. And apparently the churches back in 1954 and earlier were set up as a 508C1A. And in 54, the government tried to convince and did convince many churches to become 501C3 charitable organizations. The churches stepped into that status, thinking it would be better for their fundraising and so forth, not realizing that in that status, the government could regulate them. You probably remember, as the pandemic spread, many churches were told you cannot operate. It's too dangerous. But if you had that old form, the 508C1A, it's my understanding that you could continue to operate because you were in the private sphere. So that's an interesting thing that I'm currently exploring. I'm not 100% sure of it, but it's rather intriguing. Yes, that is very interesting. And I've gotten this sense that maybe that's the direction things will go, that there will just be two Americas, because as we're firing these experts and professionals in a lot of different sectors because they don't want to get these shots, they are going to have to find something to do. They're going to have to find some source of income. And I think in a lot of cases, that will mean starting something new. And the people who are of a like mind with them are going to be their customers, their clients. We're experiencing the same thing looking for a pediatrician here in San Diego. We found one that kind of operates outside of the system. And that's kind of fine to me and my wife. We don't need you to be associated with a particular hospital as long as you have the education and are on the same page as us. And I think there's going to be a lot of rogue, guerrilla-style career paths, I guess I would say, for people that want to be outside of this mainstream thing. And there will be consequences and limitations probably to that. But it also gives me hope that people who might think as I do are not going to be completely without resources. We'll be using things like what you're talking about. And I think that's probably a silver lining to all this. Already, I gather, many health professionals, chiropractors, acupuncturists, that sort of thing, homeopaths, use these private medical associations. It's been around for quite some time. It's just likely to explode now as people look for ways to continue to operate freely in a world which is ever more regulated and controlled by, well, profit motives of certain corporations. Yeah, I'm with you. And we have had so many interviews lately about health and masks and all the rest of that that I don't really want to go too far down that road, but I did want to give people that little anecdote 
about the free school and just the silver lining that some of these new things do seem to be emerging for them. But on the subject of health, I also wanted to ask you about Steiner's views on blood and the heart. I listened to him lecture on blood a few years ago, and it stuck with me because he talked about blood being the glue between the physical and the spiritual self, that you can't really study blood in the body, and that out of the body, when it hits the air and is put under a microscope, it's not really the same thing that it was. And those ideas, coupled with the notion that we have the heart completely wrong, that it's not a pump, it's more like a hydraulic ram, I find these things interesting. Could you elaborate a little bit on Steiner's thoughts in these areas? Well, let's talk about the heart for a minute. An anthroposophic scientist named Bronco Furst has come out with an absolutely spectacular book. It's called The Heart and Circulation, an Integrative Model, Second Edition, Springer Verlag, and he goes through the most exhaustive demonstration that the heart is not a pump, that it's something quite different. This is a major, major study. It's likely to be a significant reference going forward for anybody who really wants to understand the heart. It's so deep and complicated, I could not even hardly touch what it's about other than showing that the circulation comes out of the periphery. The heart is more a sense organ, sensing the condition and state of the blood and the body. And of course, you're right, Steiner says, looking at blood in a test tube is not the same thing as the blood as it's pulsing through the body. He sees the blood as the carrier of the human ego. The warmth in the blood is where our ego consciousness works. It's a vast subject. I don't feel particularly qualified to say much about it. I can also tell you that anthroposophic medicine in general is a phenomenally developed field. There's a man named Matthias Gierke, G-I-R-K-E, who's published a book called Internal Medicine. It's available from Salumed Verlag, that's S-A-L-U-M-E-D, and it's not too easy to get. You have to find that publisher and contact them. But this is a major medical text. You know, I'm talking a thousand pages, references to thousands of refereed medical journals, but totally integrating Steiner's terminology of physical body, ether body, astral body, ego, and the vast number of Steiner pictures of how to help different illnesses, the many medicines he created. As you perhaps know, there are pharmaceuticals now dedicated to making Steiner's medicines. And this man, Gierke, who is now the head of the Anthroposophical Society in Switzerland, helped create a major hospital in Berlin the Berlin Anthroposophic Hospital, which is a hospital with emergency rooms, the whole nine yards, strictly devoted to Steiner's approach to medicine. So in Europe, this is a very, very major thing. And if you get a chance to look at Gierke's book, I think you'll be in awe at the scope. I mean, huge chapters on cancer, diabetes, all forms of illness, how you treat them from an anthroposophic point of view, hundreds upon hundreds of different recommendations. 
an extraordinary thing. And of course, this is a textbook for medical doctors on internal medicine. Hmm. Very cool. And I hope to see anthroposophic medicine growing across America. I just find that to be so interesting, the idea that blood is unknowable. Our system, our scientific community, it's so arrogant that it knows everything about everything. And just a simple substance like blood. I've also talked to people about water, that there's so many mysterious qualities of water that we don't understand. But blood and water, two of the most ubiquitous and important substances, liquids on the planet, really. And Steiner makes this point. You can't even study blood the way you're trying to. And I just really, that resonated with me in a big way. And I guess I would ask in terms of anthroposophic medicine as a field, how were Steiner's medicines different? I've heard him quoted as saying, for every ailment, there is an herb somewhere on the planet that can fix it. I've talked to people about spagyrics, which is like the alchemy of herbs, and they definitely factor in the spirit and the soul of a particular plant or herb, and that seems very Steiner-esque. What can you say about how he would formulate medicines or recommend medicines to be formulated compared to Big Pharma? Well, Steiner, of course, had the ability to clairvoyantly enter into the mineral world, the plant world, the animal world, and he could perceive things in different plants connected with the evolutionary path of the human body. Digitalis, for example, he connected with the heart. And also, he could see the working of what's called the elemental world. So there are unseeable to the human senses beings behind the backdrop of nature working in the plants and the soil and also in our organism. And he could see how certain substances would affect that. So he didn't have to just sort of make random experiments. He could actually perceive. And out of his abilities, he formulated a series of remedies called the Dorons. A Doron means gift in Greek. So there's Cardiodoron, which is gift to the heart, which, if I recollect correctly, is composed of the Anopordon thistle, the cow slip, and henbane. So these are three plants, very differently constituted. And if you read his descriptions, he explains how each of those components can help the heart. So Cardiodoron, a gift to the heart, is an excellent remedy, either as a, an occasional tonic or for hearts that are really in need. It's an RX medicine in the U.S. In Europe, you can buy it over the counter. So that was one of them. He had Hepatodoron, which is gift to the liver. What is it composed of? It's composed of strawberry leaves and grape leaves, both bitter. And Steiner said, the liver likes bitter. You help the liver with bitter. Likewise, you help the kidney with sour. That's why a non-sweetened cranberry juice can be good for your kidney. So there's a kidney remedy. I think it's Renadoron is for quite specific forms of kidney problems. There's Numadoron, 
for the lungs. Pertadoron, another lung remedy to help you cough. So there's a whole series of these Doron remedies, and Steiner wished those remedies could be given to the sick person because the sick person paying money for their remedy is counteractive to the healing process. It doesn't mean the remedy shouldn't be paid for. It just means the sick person shouldn't be paying for it. So that's one whole series of his remedies. Another thing he did, which is pretty unique, is work with the metals, the planetary metals. Silver, the moon metal, and then you have copper for Venus, and he uses antimony for Mercury, gold, the sun, Jupiter is iron. No, sorry, Mars is iron. Jupiter is tin, and Saturn is lead. And if you go back to olden times, people had a way of associating the planets with the organs. And so there are preparations of metals for the organs, sometimes combined with plant substances. There's one, it's a combination of silver and bryophyllum. And if I recollect it correctly, the bryophyllum directs the silver to a particular organ. So these metal remedies, and then a subclass of that is he wanted the pharmacist to take, say, silver and make it into a potentized solution and to water certain plants with it. So the plant would take up a homeopathic preparation of a particular metal. That plant would then be harvested and made into compost, and the same plant now grown on the compost of that harvested plant with more fresh silver. And of course, you know, he does chamomile and copper, a number of these. So these are the homeopathically watered plants. So you have a plant which has taken up the metal in a special way. So there's several categories of his medicinal work, the dorons, the plants that are watered with homeopathic metals. So those are great remedies. If you go to Gierke's book, you'll see how they're used. That's internal medicine. And then, of course, there's Iskador, the mistletoe preparation for tumorous cancer. Mistletoe, you might know, is a parasite. It grows on trees. It has no natural rhythm. It blooms and blossoms at any time of year, completely out of season. And Steiner said this indicates that it's a plant that has come from the past. It isn't quite in the present. And then he speaks about how to use it in the treatment of cancer. That's the Iskador preparation. So those are a few thoughts on his medicaments. Wow, wow. Yeah, that's a, a great summary of sorts. And Steiner's abilities as a seer are really interesting to me. It seems like this innate ability he always had, but also cultivated it further and deeper. I'm curious if your study of Steiner has helped you develop your own ability to see or sense these unseen realms or spirits or elementals, or are those things just aspects you take his word on? Well, I have personally been very interested in the path of development of one's faculties and have worked with it regularly since I started studying Steiner. What you learn is that 
by doing that, your ability to comprehend Steiner grows. Your mind becomes more flexible and able. You also come to understand what a monumental thing it is to awaken that level of seership. I mean, the level that Steiner had. As you mentioned, he was born with capacities. It's also interesting to note that as he went on to explain these things, he said there are old atavistic capacities which have almost completely disappeared from humanity. And he says, if you go back in time, particularly if you go back before what's known as the flood, and before the flood, Steiner says, was another era, the era of Atlantis. This, by the way, was something known to the Greeks and the Egyptians. I think it's in the Timaeus by Plato. They speak of Atlantis as being beyond the pillars of Hercules. The pillars of Hercules are the Straits of Gibraltar. And what Steiner argues is that Atlantis occupied the whole bed of the Atlantic Ocean. And that was possible because the flood represented a change in the parameters of physics through which the relative densities of water and air changed. Before that change, the water was lighter, the air was heavier, and the whole atmosphere was filled with mist. So Atlantis was a land of mists. It was talked about by the German sagas, the Nibelungen's leads. They mean the songs of the lands of mist. And in those poems, which you can still get, there were these initiated heroes, the Sig heroes. When I try to explain the existence of Atlantis to people who are skeptical, I point them to the discovery of the largest pterodactyl bird in history in Big Bend in Texas in the 70s. This bird had a 30, what was it, a 39-foot wingspan, and aeronautical engineers said there's a problem. He couldn't fly. Well, if he couldn't fly, what was he using a 39-foot wingspan for? And then I met a physical chemist who calculated that if the atmosphere had been 4.2 times denser, this bird that had been named Quetzalcoatl could fly, which seems to back up what Steiner told us. In any case, in Atlantis, Steiner said most people were clairvoyant, and their clairvoyance was based on the fact that half of the petals of each of their lotus flowers were active, and this enabled them to experience the spiritual world and spiritual beings, but in a state of very diminished self-consciousness. And the loss of the old clairvoyance was to give us the possibility to become self-conscious ego beings. And we've now accomplished that. And Steiner says it's therefore time to reawaken the clairvoyance and maintain the new ego consciousness. And what he says is that if you do the esoteric exercises, you will slowly bring the other half of the lotus flower into functioning, the part that had never opened. And when it opens, the other part will be given to you also, and you will become clairvoyant. That, in a nutshell, was what the exercises are about. But as you work at it, you realize just how hard a task it is. And it's not a 
abstract task. It's something that takes hold of your whole soul and your being, and it takes you down into all of the chambers of your soul, into all the things buried there that, you know, a psychologist would say, well, you have to wake up to, and you go through traumas. But the problem is much deeper than what you've gone through in this lifetime. It has to do with everything embedded within the deeper layers of your being from your past incarnations, your karma. And so as you work at these things, you start pulling your karma towards you. And that slows you down, gives you all manner of difficulties. But you go on a journey of self-development. And as you work at that, you begin to appreciate Yes, this thing is possible, but to reach a level like Steiner is extraordinarily difficult. He was so advanced, it's really hard almost to comprehend it. Uh, our late author, Sergei O. Prokofiev, who was the grandson of the famous Russian composer, wrote several books on Steiner and who he was, how you could understand his stature. And as you come to comprehend that, you realize you're looking at an absolute titan of higher sight and that it's probably unrealistic to think you're going to get to where he got. But if you work at it, you come to have certain experiences which allow you to say, yes, this thing is true, and you become more humble about how far you might achieve in a given lifetime. So that's, I guess, a long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> no, it's great. I do love this kind of stuff, but it just seems almost impossible to really take that path of inner work and karmic work to its fullest degree and also meet the demands of modern society. And a part of me is like, well, maybe that's by design so that there's so many distractions and obligations that nobody can really fully take that journey. But it seems more important. It seems kind of what we're designed to do to a degree, but no one is really doing it. It's like very, very rare to find someone who really is dedicated to that path. And they become the, the spiritual gurus and leaders that their energy, their impact extends far beyond their physical life because they are just so rare. It just seems tough. It, it's probably harder today than ever to really dedicate yourself to that, wouldn't you say? Well. You know, Steiner says that there are three paths to higher worlds which are legitimate today. The oldest one is the path of yoga, and he says that path probably is not available to most Westerners. Why is that? Because in a true yogic path, you need a true guru, and you must basically pledge complete obedience to this guru. Perhaps you know the famous book, The Autobiography of a Yoga by Paramhansen Yoganandan, a classic description of the Oriental path. And in that book, there is a story about a man seeking the immortal yoga Babaji, who is, according to the tradition, lives in the Himalayas. And this man was searching through the peaks of the Himalayas, looking, looking, looking to find this master. 
and finally, after great travail, he comes across the master and his troop of Shilas in the, the heights of the Himalayas, and he comes up to him, and he bows down and begs that he could become a pupil. And Babaji said, fine, throw yourself off that cliff. And the man immediately ran, throws himself off the cliff, crashes down, is broken, and is essentially dead. The Shilas go down, they bring him up, he's revived, and Babaji says, you have obeyed me, you may become my pupil. Unfortunately, the average American would say, off that cliff? We just don't obey like that. We don't have it in us. We've been trained to say, I'm from Missouri. Give me the explanation. So the yogic path, very difficult for a Westerner. Also, a bit because of the constitution of the bodies. The second path Steiner speaks about is the Christian path. This is the path of a monastic monk or nun who can live in absolute silence, take a vow of silence, live in constant contemplation of certain meditative themes. And Steiner describes, I believe, in the back of his lectures on the Gospel of St. John, something of that path, where you dedicate your soul to certain contemplations. The first one is described this way. You think about the fact that the plant is dependent on its existence to the mineral kingdom. You picture the plant bowing down to the mineral and saying, I am higher than you in evolution, but I owe my existence to you. And then you picture the animal bowing down in like manner to the plant, which feeds it, saying, I am higher in the scale of being than you, plant kingdom, yet I owe my existence to you and so I bow down before you. And then the human being has to bow down to the animal and plant and mineral kingdoms, acknowledging, though he's a higher creation, he couldn't exist without those kingdoms. And then this leads to a contemplation of the famous scene in the New Testament where Christ washes the feet of his disciples. And he says something like, though I am higher than each of you, I could not do my work. I could not fulfill my task without my apostles, so he washes their feet. And Steiner says the Christian mystic begins, in a way, by meditating on that picture, and it creates a kind of mood in his soul, and that mood must not break. He must carry it through the entire day, through his work in the garden, through whatever tasks he has in the monastery, never for a moment allowing that mood to depart him. And if he carries that long enough, then he will have a kind of spiritual revelation. He will see a picture of Christ washing the feet, and he will feel water lathing across his feet. He has achieved the first rung of the Christian path, and there are several more rungs, each of which require that kind of monastic soul constitution, which, of course, for most Westerners, is totally impossible as you're running through subways and answering your smartphone and dealing with the diapers and the cooking. All of these things are constant interruption. So there's a third path. It's called the Rosicrucian path, designed for the busy person. And that he describes in the fifth chapter of Occult Science, where there are certain meditations you can do in a few minutes during the day and then forget about them. 
And that path is doable, but it takes willpower. You have to be able to dedicate, let's just say, 10 minutes a day every day of your life to certain practices. These practices are laid out in the fifth chapter of Steiner's book, Occult Science. They're laid out in the book, Knowledge of the Higher Worlds and Its Attainment. In fact, it's the first half of that book, which actually gives you practices. And another very useful book is called Guidance in Esoteric Training. So there is a path for the busy person, but admittedly, you know, you have to find the strength to put aside 10 minutes a day. You know, I know of people who they wake up in the morning, they do these practices in bed before their children can come and bother them and so forth. 10 minutes, that's about what it takes. Every day, if you work at that for a lifetime, you will make progress and you'll come to appreciate that it is progress, perhaps not as much as you'd hoped when you began, but nonetheless, you start being able to observe certain things. So that's my answer to that question. It's Steiner's answer. The Rosicrucian path is there for the modern busy person living in our civilization. Excellent. That is a great summary of all three paths, and it makes a lot of sense that there needs to be something there for the busy person because we're kind of all busy these days. And to get further into the dynamics and relationships between the physical realm and the spiritual, I was listening to a Steiner lecture on this, part of a collection called An Esoteric Cosmology, and he laid out a relationship between spirits, thoughts, and people where, just to read some of my notes here, the content of the human soul is rich and diverse, a thought occupies a place in our soul, a clairvoyant can demonstrate how a current comes from a thought and seeks out a being in the astral realm, streams continually flow to the most diverse beings of the astral world, we spin the most diverse threads connecting us to the most diverse beings of the astral world, Humans with similar thoughts and feelings could establish a connection to the same being in the astral world. When the people of a collective nation think about a concept like justice in the same way, they all have a connection to a particular being in the astral realm. This being is constituted of the concept of justice. It lives within it. And there are astral beings for all concepts and ideas. Is this a dynamic that resonates with you as well? I find it pretty interesting, but I don't really know how to make a ton of sense of it or how accurate it is. It certainly sounds like uh, things I have read in Steiner, where he's picturing the astral embodiment of spiritual ideas and the connection a soul forms with those ideas by living with and entertaining the thought. It's not so difficult to understand that, you know, a person whose thought life is completely preoccupied, let's say, with making money, succeeding, having possessions, thinking about nothing but technology and so forth, you know, is quite a different person than someone who spends a lot of time thinking, let's just say, about biodynamic agriculture the life of the soil, the elemental beings, and the nature of the human being within nature, right? I mean, if you took two people and one of whom completely devoted their life to the, the idea of farming in a biodynamic 
wholesome way and the other completely dedicated to, let's say, high tech and making money, you know, you'd have two very different experiences when you met those people. So, you know, in a way, it's not that we are what we eat, but we are what we think. And I believe there really are such beings. And, you know, Steiner also says in his early philosophical writings that it's a basic thought of philosophy that when I think the idea triangle and you think the idea triangle, we're thinking the same idea. It's, you know, as if the eye of your mind can focus on the being of triangle. And when two people do that, they're looking at the same being. And this is a fundamental philosophical thought for him. And he takes it back to a debate of the Middle Ages between nominalism and realism. And as perhaps you know, the realists who surrounded Thomas Aquinas and Albertus Magnus argued that ideas were reality. They called them universals. And the opposing camp, the nominalists, said no. Ideas are just names. They're categories we use to organize the knowledge we have of outer nature, but they're just symbols with no intrinsic reality. And the realist said, on the contrary, the ideas are beings. They are embodied in the visible perception of things, and they are the real reality. This goes back to Plato and his ideas. And Steiner works it out in his philosophy of spiritual activity in this way. He says, there's a tendency for people to think that a rose is a real thing. We know that if you plant a rose seed, it germinates, out comes a sprout, then it gets a little bigger with leaves, thorns on the stem, growing up bigger and bigger until a bud and a rose flower and a rose hip, etc. That's all perceptible. That's real. But then Steiner asks, but what if I put a human being in front of that process? Then, if he works with his thought, the concept of rose arises in his mind. And the full concept is the concept of that whole dynamic existence of rose, which goes from seed to shoot, etc. That full dynamic concept you never see in the world at one time. It's always in one condition. And yet the totality is there. That is the universal, the idea of rose, which makes the visible rose possible. And so ideas are realities. And the ideas that are there in the things of nature are separated, says Steiner, from the object of perception by our own organization. Our organization is designed so that we get the perceptible part just by opening our eyes, opening our ears, or listening. But the concept we have to work for, we have to use our thinking capacity. And when we link the concept with the percept, then we have knowledge. So that's where all this begins. But then he takes us to the point where those ideas, those universals, are actually beings. And that indeed, in the spiritual world, after we're dead, the human being is an idea among idea beings. 
and interacts with them. So it's quite a complex picture, but the big dispute between the medieval nominalists and realists is a starting point for beginning to get the difference. And of course, our world is largely dominated by a nominalistic perspective. Ideas are free. They're just ciphers that we use to organize things. But the thought that they are existent beings and then work in your soul, and when you contemplate them, you connect with them in the astral plane, and that has implications, that, of course, is virtually unknown, except now to your audience. <laughs> yeah, that is a really great breakdown of a complex idea. And this has been amazing. Obviously, it's just a crash course in some of the really dense material that Steiner has on pretty much every subject. And you have an impressive amount of knowledge when it comes to this stuff and a real talent for talking about it. I very much appreciate you taking the time to do this. You're not really here to promote much more than ideas per se, but Tell people about your books in particular and give them any links or follow-up information you want them to know about before we call it in. Well, one of the pieces of my biography was managing Anthroposophic Press, 1980 to 1988. And during that time, I managed to get the Nobel laureate Saul Bellow to write a foreword to a collection of Steiner lectures called The Boundaries of Natural Science. The story of how that came about is quite interesting. And of course, Bellow being perhaps the most famous English language writer of the second half of the 20th century, getting a foreword by him really got that book into many libraries. And I wrote a, an account of that activity called Conversations with Saul Bellow on Esoteric Spiritual Matters, a publisher's recollection. That's by me, Stephen E. Usher, and it's a Steiner Book Publication 2017. You might find that interesting. Also, I mentioned this collection of Steiner's lectures and essays on threefolding, currently published as Rudolf Steiner, Social Threefolding, Rebalancing Culture, Politics, and economics. This is from the British Steiner Library, Rudolf Steiner Press, but you can find both of these books on Amazon. They're interesting reads, including a whole discussion of how the First World War broke out and Steiner's attempts to bring a healing to Central Europe at the end of that. That's about as much as I can think of offhand. I hope Greg, you'll send me a, an email so I can listen to the podcast when it airs and tell about it to my friends. Certainly been very interesting talking to you. You've got great questions and great insights. I'm quite impressed and hope to be able to hear this broadcast when it comes out. Absolutely. And that's kind of you to say. I'm really just trying to hang on. It's you that is so impressive and you're a real inspiration. You know a lot about a lot. Huge thanks for doing this, and take care out there. Well, thank you so much, and do send me that link so I can listen. Yes, people, what a great episode we got here. I seriously loved it. I've said it before, but some interviews are with guests who are just doing the conspiracy podcast rounds, and I still try to do the best interview I can. But in those situations, I'm still only going to be one of many when certain people have a new book out and stuff like that. 
But the real good ones, the special THC episodes, are when I can bring you someone you most likely haven't heard before, and they bring you content you most likely aren't familiar with. And I think we really hit it out of the park today. Dr. Usher did an amazing job. He cultivated a deep understanding of Steiner over many years, and I'm very thankful we were able to connect. And that he is so good at summarizing segments of very complex and dense material. It's not really easy to jump around like we did, but, you know, I also love these grab bag shows where we can jump from topic to topic and pack so much in like we did. I also love it because it's not really about current events, but yet it kind of is. And he didn't really come here to plug anything, just happy to spread the good word of Steiner, and he is a master at it, clearly. I want to make sure we thank John Scott Legg, the current managing director of SteinerBooks.org and or SteinerBooks.PressWarehouse.com. Dr. Usher was his recommendation, and I think we're all very thankful right now. I also want to make sure people are reminded of that major contribution Dr. Usher made in his book Conversations with Saul Bellow on Esoteric Spiritual Matters, a Publisher's Recollections. It's kind of cool when there is an author out there who maybe was subtle about some of his feelings on things, but you could tell from the work, and then someone like Dr. Usher goes and says, hey, I think I picked up on some threads can you elaborate on these things and your thoughts on some of these areas? And then basically gets it on the record. That's pretty cool. To read from the back of the book, in 1975, Saul Bellow published his eighth novel, Humboldt's Gift, in which the main protagonist is occupied with, among many other things, the teachings of Rudolf Steiner. Although the novel was an immediate success, winning a Pulitzer Prize and leading directly to Bellow's Nobel Prize for Literature in 1976, the unapologetic presence of Rudolf Steiner's anthroposophy in a work of such obvious cultural importance was and remains puzzling for many commentators. A sentence from one contemporary review of the novel is typical. I am not clear whether Charlie's devotion to Steiner's anthroposophy is one of Mr. Bellow's more obscure jokes or is meant seriously. Those readers with more than a passing knowledge of Steiner's work, however, immediately recognize that an authentic effort to unprejudicedly come to terms with anthroposophy lay behind Bellow's artful depiction of Charlie Citrine. Stephen Usher, who five years later became the manager of the anthroposophic press, was one such reader. This small book is a personal account of the conversations and correspondence that followed their meeting through a mutual acquaintance and includes the foreword Saul Bellow wrote at the time for a significant book of lectures by Rudolf Steiner, The Boundaries of Natural Science. It's a quick read, but it's pretty awesome that he got to actually contribute to getting that on the record with such a noteworthy author who's no longer around to share their feelings. Glad somebody asked. And it's a great follow-up to this episode because it also kind of weaves through Steiner's subjects in a similar way. Also, Dr. Usher did get back to me a few days after we recorded and wanted to add a little elaboration on his comments about the economy. So I'll just read what he said to you. After many years of observing the economy, there is one enduring experience. Looking ahead, it usually looks bleak but it often surprises me in that the economy is so much more resilient than I could imagine. 
My guess from this experience is things will somehow muddle through. Anyway, that should take the edge off of my statement. <laughs> and I appreciate that. It was a little dire. I understand the feelings of direness. But I guess he just didn't want to leave you guys with such a negative forecast. So I think that was a nice thing to add. It's good to be aware and pay attention, maybe even plan a little for rocky times, but put it all into perspective and don't get dragged into apocalyptic thinking. Certainly not a good headspace for me right now because in higher side news, I just became a girl dad. And our daughter, Theory Lynn Carlwood, has arrived. Baby Theo, as we've been saying, and... As odd a name as Theory is, it's the first three letters of my wife Teresa's name and the last three letters of Gregory, and it just fit too well not to lean into. And everything they say is true. It's a level of love that seems hard to experience any other way, but that also makes you vulnerable in a new way, too. And I'll save the full report for a joint session or something rather than taking up too much time with my personal stuff at the end of an unrelated THC episode, but for nine months, my wife and I did everything right that we could to make a strong baby through diet and vitamins and all the rest of it, but when the day came, we were rushed from the birth center to the hospital. My wife had to have an emergency C-section. The vision of me catching the baby in the tub and us having this moment where we get the gender reveal together, none of that happened. My wife was put under, and I wasn't even in the room. Most traumatic experience of my life, but long story short, we are home now, and by every metric that exists for five-day-old babies, it seems like we got her out just in time, and we will all make it through this unscathed. But the lesson I learned was to take it down a notch when being so critical of the hospital system and Western medicine, because my daughter would not be here otherwise, and all of my hubris over... Well, if we let the placenta drain and do all these natural things, what could go wrong? Well, life can be random sometimes, and we didn't get to let the placenta drain or do a lot of the things that we cared about, but it's all good, right? All's well that ends well. One thing that does tie into this episode is the vaccine issue. I've been so obsessed over it and thinking that if you avoid the shots, then of course your kid will be healthy. And I've been pretty cocky about that. And I got a very clear reminder that it's not that simple. Even though, in Theory's fragile state, while they gave her an IV of antibiotics and fed her through another IV right out of the womb, in her first 24 hours of life, they did want to give her a hepatitis B vaccine. Which is nuts. And I had to say no to that. They didn't push me beyond asking a couple of times, but I felt a little shocked that they would even want to do that right then. But because we were stuck in the hospital for a few days, we literally had nothing to do but hold her and do the skin-to-skin -skin contact thing and get her started on breastfeeding, and I think that was a game-changer and everything is good. She didn't even lose weight in the first few days, which they say is a great sign and even a bit rare. But it's a testament to how dedicated my wife is to making sure she's getting all the mother's milk she can. It ended up being one of the few things we could control, and I'm very thankful for my wife's tenacity on that. So, yeah, wish we had had this magical birth experience. Wish my baby wasn't pumped with antibiotics on her first day. 
Wish I was there when she was born and my wife could say that all her discipline and hard work paid off the natural way. But we have a healthy little girl and we're going to control the things we can control now. And for me, I am going to take some time for the family because we had a five-day labor, then another three days in the hospital, and we're finally home now. So this is what I expected to be taking time off for rather than having it all eaten up in the pregame. So it's just, I guess, requires more time than I thought. But I'm already two shows ahead for November. I planned well. It shouldn't disrupt you guys too much. And hopefully you understand. But that is the show. Big thanks again to Dr. Usher. You can thank him yourself at stephenusher.com. Oh yeah, I almost forgot entirely to say sign up for plus if you want to hear the second hour of course it was just as action-packed totally different aspects of steiner's work that we got into some of that stuff would be the nuances of the dynamic between thoughts astral beings and energy the great polarity lucifer and Aramon, and the voices he did were just really stellar by the way we talked about Ariman's coronavirus fear boost, principles of biodynamic agriculture. That's something I could probably do a full show on. Dr. Usher's own expertise in economics and his thoughts about our broad economic health today. Economic and financial advice for an individual in these times. And Steiner's Nine Layers of the Earth. All great stuff. TheHigherSideChats.com. Sign up for plus $8 a month. You get five full two-hour shows, lots of great content in the archive, and you don't have to be a member forever. Just throw me a couple of bones and get yourself twice as much good stuff. All right. I love you guys. Take care of your families. Be kind to everyone else. Don't sweat the small stuff and don't pet the sweaty stuff, as George Carlin would say. Focus on the things that matter and all that. But I gotta declare this meeting of the Midnight Society closed. I've done my part. Your move, Steiner suppressors, esoteric insight ignores, and agents of Araman. Your fucking move. Oh no, you see, the world isn't Attached to puppet strings Control over everything The nine to five is trying to steal ya Now don't that job seem silly Hello, can you hear me? Or should I play back recordings From some spike agency Wish we were younger I'll be thankful when it's all exposed The vast conspiracy There's such a difference Between us And the damn
Time. 